see everyone here this morning. And uh, this morning we have a special guest speaker, uh, Mike Riccardi. And uh, I introduced him last year, um, and I'll do it again this year. As uh, uh, I, basically last year, I, I said I'm going to kind of tell a similar story. So if you uh, uh, if you were here last year, remember it. But uh, about 20 some years ago, uh, it was a friend of mine and myself, we co-led a Bible study at work. And uh, there was someone who came uh, at some point, attended that Bible study. His name was Joe Riccardi. And uh, he was uh, uh, a man that uh, has been a, a blessing. And uh, I, after some time, I hadn't really taught, we hadn't had the Bible study in, in a number of years. And uh, then just a couple years ago, it turns out that uh, the Lord providentially uh, had Joe uh, move right next to my office, and uh, so we were uh, we were together and we were catching up on some things. And um, I learned uh, then, in the last couple years, that uh, Joe had a son, Mike, who went to the Master's Seminary and uh, was about to graduate. And uh, and his name, so Mike is here today, and it's just been a, a great blessing to know that uh, Joe, his dad, was in a Bible study that uh, we uh, taught, and it would, actually during that time, uh, we used some materials from Grace to You when Grace to You was on the radio around here, and, um, uh, and so I think probably through that time is where Joe learned about John MacArthur and Grace to You, and maybe brought some of that uh, uh, home, uh, and uh, Mike, the Lord, uh, then uh, brought Mike to come to Christ, and uh, brought him to uh, show an interest in preaching and uh, uh, what better place to go than the Master Seminary. And so uh, he's here today to bring us the Word of God. He was here last year. And uh, if you'll please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. He'll be preaching in a minute. And uh, if you recall last year when he was here, he was preaching in Philippians chapter 1. So in the manner of a true Master's grad, he's picking up where he left off, expository uh, preaching through the book of Philippians, and um, come now, Mike, and uh, preach the word of God. Thanks, Wayne. I guess I'll just move this down here. All right, well, good morning. It's a, uh, it is a pleasure for me to uh, once again bring you greetings from the elders of Grace Community Church in uh, Sun Valley, California. Uh, and as always, it is uh, such a joy to be able to travel 3,000 miles across an entire country um, and be entirely at home with the people of God because of the fellowship that we share in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I once, want, once again want to thank Pastor Bobby and, and your elders, Dwayne, um, uh, for their kind invitation to minister the Word of God to you this morning, especially on the Sunday before Christmas, which is prime time uh, for a pastor. So uh, thank you, Pastor Bobby, for your generosity in sharing your pulpit and your dear people with me. It is a privilege uh, to preach God's Word to you all this morning. Well, and as I was considering what text in the Word of God that I would preach to you this morning, and since it is the Sunday before Christmas, my mind was drawn to Philippians chapter 2, and particularly verses 5 through 8, but I'd like to read with you uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, before we start this morning. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. And not just wonderful things, but Father, a wonderful Savior from it. Uh, that you would open our eyes to, to see the glory of Christ. That we would uh, apprehend him whom you mean to show us this morning. Whom all your word means to show us. I uh, pray that you would uh, gird up the loins of our mind. Holy Spirit, that you would fill your people to, to love your word and love the Christ whom the word presents. Uh, as we behold him in all of his glory and all of his humility, I ask that you would uh, sanctify us, that you would, as we behold that glory, would transform us into the very image of that glory uh, here this morning, that we might be more Christ-like, more holy, more pleasing to you, for you are worthy of it. We ask for your name to be lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christmas is the time of year when we celebrate the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is uh, the time of year when we celebrate the magnificent mystery of the eternal Word, the Word who was in the beginning with God, the Word who was God, that Word becoming flesh and dwelling among sinful humanity, dwelling among us. God the Father giving the greatest gift that could ever be given to sinful humanity, the gift of His Son, born as a helpless babe so that He could take upon Himself the weakness and the infirmity of humanity, so that He could live as a man and accomplish righteousness as a man in precisely the way that Adam failed and in precisely the way that you and I have failed to live righteously before God. And the Father sent Christ not only to live as a man, but to die as a man. And in His death, to bear the full penalty of the wrath of God that was due to you and to me because of our sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was born to die. So that, having paid the penalty for the sins of His people, He might rescue us from the condemnation that we rightly deserve. That is the meaning of Christmas. And that is what we celebrate when we remember the incarnation of Christ. And so my mind was drawn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Because it is in these verses that we have the most detailed description, exposition, of the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. In these four short verses, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the loftiest and most precise Christology that we see anywhere else in Scripture. As he speaks in detail about the Lord's pre-existence as the eternal Son of God, the, the mystery of the incarnation, His being fully God and fully man, having 
two natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation, yet bound up in a single person. And so I thought it would be fitting at this time of year, and we celebrate the incarnation of Christ, to give ourselves to the study of His incarnation. And no passage will provide greater insight in that than our passage this morning. But what's interesting about Philippians 2, 5 to 8, is that even though all of that lofty theology is present in the text, it is not Paul's primary point to discourse on the fine points of Christology. Those truths are there in the text, and they are glorious. And we are going to study them this morning. But because true biblical exposition demands that the preacher take the main point of the text as the main point of his sermon, we must keep in mind that all of that theology is here to serve as an illustration, as a magnificent illustration, an example of the humility that Paul has called us to in the preceding verses in Philippians. In chapter 1, verse 27, which is the thesis verse of the book of Philippians, the, the Apostle Paul has begun to explain what it will mean for the people of God to conduct their lives as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says in verse 27 that for, for them and for us, that chiefly involves being united with one another. If the people of God are to have any hope of standing firm in the face of opposition from a hostile culture, if they are to have any hope of propagating the gospel of repentance and faith in Christ Jesus amidst a hostile society, they're going to need to be unified. And so, Philippians chapter 2 begins with a clarion call to Christian unity. Verses 1 and 2, If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And after that call to unity, Paul states that the means of true Christian unity in verses 3 and 4, is humility. The way that true unity is achieved in practice is for the people of God to be characterized by gospel-driven humility. So the key to unity is humility. He says in verse 3, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than ourselves, not merely looking out for our own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so, Paul, having commanded them to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, and having called them then to the unity through which they will be able to withstand opposition, and having instructed them to be marked by the kind of humility without which that unity cannot be realized, now, in verses 5 to 11, he gives them a concrete example of that humility, a picture that is worth more than a thousand words. And not just any example. Not just any picture, but the ultimate model for Christian conduct. The supreme example of self-sacrificing humility. The incarnation and gospel mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So you see, Christmas, the celebration of the birth of of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just a nice story that family and friends can unite around, sing Christmas carols to, drink eggnog with. For true believers in Jesus, Christmas has ethical implications. 
The truths of the incarnation of Christ are not there to just make us smile and feel warm and fuzzy inside. They are, they are to have a visible impact upon our lives. The incarnation of Christ, friends, is to make us a humble people. The incarnation is to make us a humble people. The whole point of Paul's explaining the fine points of Christ's pre-existence and incarnation in this text is to demonstrate the heights from which the Lord Jesus came and the depths to which He humbled Himself in His birth, in His life, in His death, and in His service of others so that we would have the clearest picture of His example to follow as we pursue humility and service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, the call of Christmas is the call to humility. And with that, I want to make a brief observation before we jump right in. I want you to notice how the Word of God weaves together the most practical instruction with the most lofty and most unsearchable theology. The most practical, mundane, applicable matters of Christianity like humility and unity within the body of Christ are wedded to the deepest and most difficult doctrines for the mind to even conceive of. So many professing Christians say things like, I don't want to hear about doctrinal debates or theological controversies. I want practical teaching. I want a Christianity that meets me where I'm at and shows me how to live right here and now. My friends, in light of Philippians chapter 2, that's a statement of foolishness. Because there is no such dichotomy between theology on the one hand and practice on the other. If this text teaches us anything, it's that a Christianity that is focused on the heart, that is focused on practice, that is focused on application, cannot be divorced from deep thinking and hard truths. They are woven together inextricably. It is by thinking deeply, it is by meditating on this difficult theology that we understand the Christian life in its fullness and are equipped to live in a way that is most pleasing and most honoring to God. And so because this practical instruction about humility is wedded to some of the most exalted theology about the person of Jesus Christ, it's going to be our challenge this morning to explore and understand that theology while also keeping the big picture in view. As we delve into the technical points of high Christology, we need to be reminded that this is not a cold, detached intellectualism. It is not simply an academic exercise. What it is, is that we are summoning all of our faculties in an endeavor to, be reminded, to, to, in an endeavor to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because if we're going to truly understand the humility to which we're called, we have to understand the example of that humility which we're called to imitate. And Christmas gives that example in the incarnation of Christ. And we'll examine these truths about the Lord Jesus by hanging our thoughts on three headings. That'll function as our outline this morning. We'll look at Christ's pre-incarnate glory. Christ's pre-incarnate glory. Second, His pre-incarnate humility. And third, His incarnate humility. Again, His pre-incarnate glory, which is to say His exalted position in heaven before He became a man. His 
pre-incarnate humility, which we'll see is the expression of his humility as God the Son even before he came to earth. And finally, his incarnate humility, that humility that he displayed as the God-man while here on earth. And because this text can tend to get a bit complex, I think it'll be helpful to just summarize what the passage is saying right up front so that you can keep this big picture in mind as we examine the parts in depth. So here's an excellent summary of verses 6 through 8 from commentator Moises Silva. He says, The divine and pre-existent Christ did not regard the advantage of his deity as grounds to avoid the incarnation. On the contrary, he was willing to regard himself as nothing by taking on human form. Then he further lowered himself in servanthood by obeying God to the point of ignominious death. I'll read it again just a little bit more quickly. The divine and pre-existent Christ didn't regard the advantage of his deity as grounds to avoid the incarnation. On the contrary, he was willing to regard himself as nothing by taking on human form. Then he further lowered himself in servanthood by obeying God to the point of ignominious death. It's a great summation of what this text is trying to say. And we'll look now a little bit more deeply at that. Let's look first then to that divine and pre-existent Christ, as Silva says, as we consider him in relation to, number one, his pre-incarnate glory. His pre-incarnate glory. Verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, the NAS says, although he existed in the form of God, and a better translation of that would simply be Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, and so on. We'll, we'll, we'll stop there for now. So it's not helpful to translate that in the past tense, who existed, because Paul intentionally uses a, a form of speech here in the present tense to express ongoing continuous action. Before Jesus became a man, Christ was eternally existing in the form of God. And here we have is a clear, explicit reference to the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus did not come into existence at the Incarnation. Jesus himself tells the Jews in John 8, 50, 58, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. John 17, 5, Jesus speaks of the glory, with which he, or the glory which he had with the Father before the world was. And of course, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so even before his life as a man, this Jesus was existing. But how? In what state was he existing? In, in what condition? Paul says in verse 6 that he was existing in the form of God. Now, this phrase is actually the first of many in this passage that has caused a lot of people to plunge into Christological error and even heresy. What does Paul mean when he says that Christ was existing in the form of God? Does he mean that Christ existed only in the form of God, such that he was like God, but not really God? No. That word that's translated form there is the Greek word morphe from which we get terms like morphology and metamorphosis, a changing of form. Now, the translation in English, form, is really unfortunate because our English word conveys the idea of merely the outward appearance of something. It's just the external form. 
But there really isn't a better option in the English language. One Greek scholar wrote, form is an inadequate rendering of morphe, but our language affords no better word. So rather than a single one-to-one -one word equivalent, we've got to explain what the term means. In Greek, morphe refers to the outward manifestation that corresponds to the inward essence. The outward manifestation that corresponds to the inward essence, to the external form that represents what is intrinsic and essential. So one, one commentator says it is a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. So Christ was existing in the morphe of God because in his very essence, in his very being and nature, he was God. And this is plain from the text we just read regarding Christ's pre-existence. Before Abraham was born, I am. And Jesus said that not only explaining that he was pre-existing, he could have said before Abraham was, I was. But he said, I am. He used the divine name, Yahweh. That's why the next verse tells us that the, the Jews picked up stones to kill him because he was equating himself with God. And back to John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in fact, we don't even have to leave our passage to understand that Morphe refers to the essential divine nature, and thus indicates Jesus' deity. Later in verse 6, Paul says that Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Equality, the word there is the Greek word isos, isos which is where we get the word isomers which you chemistry majors might remember, uh, describes chemical compounds that have the same number of the same elements but have different structural formulas. So they have the same chemical uh, elements in, in the same number of each, but they're, but they're different forms, but they are equal to each other, so we call them isomers. And if, to, if you're not good at chemistry, we switch to geometry, and many of you will remember uh, the word isosceles triangle. An isosceles triangle is a, a triangle with two equal sides. So Jesus is Isa Theo. He is equal to God. And when you consider such statements as uh, Isaiah 46, 9, in which God says, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. The conclusion is inescapable. If no one is equal to God but God himself, and if Christ is equal to God, Christ himself must be fully God. And if that wasn't enough, I've got more for you. As I said, Morphe refers to the outward manifestation and, uh, of the inner essence and nature. Well, what is the outward manifestation of the inner essence and nature of God? It's glory. Throughout the Old Testament, as God's presence is described to His people, there's a manifestation of that Shekinah glory. It's the, it's the pillar of, of cloud, or it's the pillar of fire, or it's the smoke that fills the tabernacle. Or uh, in Ezekiel, it's the bright light that goes up from the temple. You say, did Jesus exist in divine glory? Yes, indeed. We read it in John 17, verse 5. Christ says, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world was. In John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And not only this, but in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet says that in the year that King Uzziah died, 
He saw, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And there the angel sang to the one on the throne, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in John 12, John quotes this passage of Isaiah 6. And he says in John 12, 41, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And he spoke of him. And in the context of John 12, the he and him is Jesus. In Isaiah 6, that amazing vision of the glory of God filling the temple and the heavenly throne is Jesus' glory. Behold, friends, the the pre-incarnate glory of your Savior. Jesus Christ is not merely a man. He is not merely a good teacher or an exemplary prophet. He is not merely God-like. He is not merely a God among many gods. He is not the first created being through which everything else was created. He is not Michael the archangel. He is God Himself. God of very God. Before the world was, He was eternally existing in the very nature of God, in the very essence of God, in the very glory of God. And keeping in mind the point of our passage, it is incumbent upon us to understand that it is from this magnificent height of heaven, of divine equality, of divine glory, that God the Son descended in humility. In this passage, the reason that we dwell upon Christ's pre-incarnate glory is because we must understand how far He had come. John Calvin puts it perfectly. He says, Since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height. How unreasonable that we, who are nothing, should be lifted up with pride. Well, having beheld a glimpse then of Christ's pre-incarnate glory, let's turn now our our eyes upon His pre-incarnate humility. His pre-incarnate humility. And I know that might sound a little strange to some of you, but stick with me. Look at verses 5 through 7. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So even though Christ existed eternally, And even though He was existing in the very morphe, in the very nature and essence and glory of God, even though He was existing in equality with God the Father, ruling creation in majesty and receiving the worship of the saints and angels in heaven, He did not regard that equality as something to be grasped. He didn't regard equality with God as something to cling to, something to take selfish advantage of and use to further His own end. Rather, he humbly accepted the mission of his incarnation in which he would renounce the glories of heaven for a time, take on the nature of a human being, and live with all the restrictions of what it meant to be human. Though he had every right to continue in unlimited, manifest power and authority, 
in receiving the worship of the saints and angels, in participating in the very glory of the Father, in perfect face-to-face fellowship and unity with His Father and with the Holy Spirit. He did not selfishly count those blessings to be slavishly held on to, but He sacrificed them to become a man and to accomplish salvation for sinners. And He had to make that determination while He was yet pre-incarnate. And so we speak of his pre-incarnate humility. He emptied himself, verse 7 says. He emptied himself. Now, this is another phrase that has caused many students of Scripture to stumble in the most unfortunate of ways. The Greek word there is kenao, and I don't use these Greek terms just to make you think I'm smart and I know Greek. It's important, especially this word, because we get the word kenosis from that. English borrows a Greek word kenosis, which is used to describe this passage. We call it the kenosis passage because it speaks of Christ's self-emptying. And so many theologians have asked, well, okay, self-emptying. Well, of what did Christ empty himself? What did he empty himself of? And answers to that question uh, have uh, you know, almost always indicate that Christ emptied himself of some form of his deity. That in some manner he ceased to be fully God in his incarnation. Which is wrong. <laughs> don't, don't let me be confused about that point or be confusing about that. Some people teach that he ceased in some manner to be fully God in his incarnation. They believe that Christ emptied himself of his essential equality with God such that during the incarnation he was a true man, but he limited his deity to such a degree that he was no more than a man. Others believe that Christ retained his essential attributes, like uh, holiness and grace, but gave up what what they call his relative attributes, like omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, and immutability. And so that system of theology is what we call kenotic theology from kenosis, uh, named, named after kenosis to empty. Kenotic theology, which is, a, is basically a category of Christological error. And depending on how far you push it, it can be a Christological heresy. It can just separate you from the stream, historic stream of Christian orthodoxy. But not only is it impossible by definition for the external, self-existent, immortal, and immutable God to cease to exist as God, But the rest of the New Testament causes us to reject such views. Listen carefully. In his time here on earth, the Lord Jesus never ceased being fully God. Nor did he cease being equal in essence with God the Father. In his time here on earth, the Lord Jesus never ceased from being fully God or being equal in essence with the Father. Throughout his ministry, he only reaffirmed those things. He told the Jews, as simply as it could be said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And the Jews got the message because they picked up stones to kill him for blasphemy. You, they said, verse 33 of John 10, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus everywhere affirmed this. John 14, 9, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Even as... Man, the Son, has authority over all flesh, John 17, 2. And when Thomas bows before Christ in John 20, 28, and confesses Him as my Lord and my God, Jesus receives that worship. He doesn't rebuke Him like the angel in Revelation, stand up, don't, don't worship me like that, worship God only. He was God. Even the Pharisees got it right in the passage we read before, Luke 5. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. So Christ does not empty himself of his deity. He does not surrender his divine attributes. You say, well, what did he empty himself of then? Well, you've got to understand the term. Though the verb kanao means to empty, everywhere in the New Testament that it's used, it is used in a metaphorical sense. So in the New Testament usage, kanao doesn't mean to pour out, like pouring water out of a jar or a, a bottle, as if Jesus was pouring something out of himself. That's actually another Greek word. It's the word ekeo that's used in that sense. Romans 5.5, 5, the Holy Spirit was poured out, was shed abroad in our hearts. That's ekeo. But kanao means to make void, to nullify, to make of no effect. And Paul uses it that way in Romans 4.14 when he says, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. You have that same word, to make void. But, but in that verse, nobody thinks, well, of what has faith been made empty? It's not like faith was pouring something out of itself. The point is that faith would be nullified. It would come to naught if righteousness could come by the law. So with that understanding of the word, it doesn't make any sense to ask of what did Christ empty himself. Christ emptied himself. He nullified himself. He made himself of no effect. In fact, the old uh, King James Version grasps this very idea in its translation. It says, Christ made himself of no reputation. And the NIV also gets the idea. It translates it, he made himself nothing. So what does it mean for Christ to make himself nothing? Well, the very next word tells us how he did it. So many of the errors, uh, the errors of canonic theology can be avoided by just looking at the next word. He emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. The word slave, bondservant, there in the NAS, is the Greek word doulos. It means slave. And it's referring to the weakness of the humanity that Christ would take upon himself. We've already spoken about the word form. Back in verse 6, it refers to the outward manifestation of the true essence or nature. And so when you add the, the following phrase to that, being made, or even, could even be translated being born in the likeness of men, it becomes clear. Christ made himself of no effect. He nullified himself. He made himself nothing by taking on human nature in his incarnation. So this is an emptying by adding. It is a subtraction by addition, he emptied himself by taking on the nature, the form, the essence of a human being. You say, come on now, is that really emptying? Is, is becoming human really such a nullification? And I love what uh, John MacArthur says about this. He says, in light of the profound reality of Jesus' full and uncompromised deity, his incarnation was the most profound possible humiliation. We may struggle to understand the gravity of such an empty because we're already down here. But think of what he left. Here is the creator of the universe. Here is the possessor of divine majesty. Here is the Lord and the master taking the form of a slave. It's striking to read the literature about what it meant to be a slave in that first century world. Listen to 
some of the things that I've found in the historical sources. Slavery, one writer says, pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights. Another says, a slave is a person without advantage, with no rights or privileges of his own, for the express purpose of placing himself completely at the service of all. Another writer says, a slave has the lowest position. He is powerless. He has no rights. He has no glory, no honor, only shame. And though all analogies fall short of reality, uh, Mark Twain's novel, The Prince and the Pauper, may help to illustrate here. The Prince and the Pauper is a story about Edward, the son of King Henry VIII, who temporarily exchanged places with Tom, who is a poor boy in London. The boys look alike, and so they think it would be a fun idea to switch places. They, they switch clothes, and Tom goes to the royal court, and the, the Prince Edward goes to Tom's house and seeks to cope with Tom's drunken and abusive father, along with the other miseries of life as a pauper. But during that time, Prince Edward surrendered none of his identity. He was indeed still the Prince of Wales, and he could have exercised that power at any moment that he wished. He'd have gone to the court, said, hey, just kidding, here I am, Prince Edward, get me a glass of water. And it would have worked. But his royalty, while fully possessed the entire time, could not be fully expressed as long as he had chosen to submit himself to life as a beggar. Well, in the same way, in taking upon himself the nature of a slave, the nature of a human being, Christ fully possessed his divine nature, his divine attributes, and his divine prerogatives throughout his earthly sojourn on earth. For, for the sake of becoming truly human, though, for the sake of being made like his brethren in all things in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest, Hebrews 2.17, he did not fully express that divine nature. They were veiled. Those prerogatives were veiled. They were fully possessed, but not fully expressed. There were certain times when he surely did express them, such as when he's reading people's minds in chapter 9, verse 4 of uh, Matthew's Gospel, and where he works divine miracles, like we read again from that, from that text. But the prince willingly submitted himself to the life of a pauper. He was not what he was in the glories of heaven. He was now fully human. Back in, verse, back in verse 7 there, being made in the likeness of men. The word likeness here simply means that in all respects apart from sin, he became like other human beings. James Montgomery Boyce said, with the exception of being sinful, Everything that can be said about a man can be said about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was born, right? He needed the care of his parents. He had a human body. Hebrews 2.14 says he partook of flesh and blood. And even though he never sinned, that didn't mean he didn't have a body that was fraught with the effects of sin, with the results of sin. You know, he got hungry. He got thirsty. He felt pain. He felt sadness. He got tired, and he slept, and of course he died. Jesus did not just put on a human disguise. He was human in the fullest sense. 
So Calvary, let us marvel at the pre-incarnate humility of Christ. Think about how much, think about how much you would love to throw off the weaknesses of your physical body this moment. Even aside from the sinfulness of your flesh, even just the pain and the infirmity that characterizes finite, decaying beings like you and me. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would love to be free from that. In this house we groan, Paul says, 2 Corinthians, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. But Jesus, free from that weakness, free from that infirmity, free from that decay, existing in the freedom of an infinite, eternal being, basking forever in the glory and presence of God the Father, enjoying the worship of the saints and angels that He was worthy to receive. He nevertheless took the form of the slave. He didn't say, I oh, forget about them down there. They keep spitting in my face, keep sinning. He took the form of a slave. God the Son contemplated the riches of His pre-incarnate glory and submissively chose to take on a human nature and the weakness of human flesh, to live and to die as a slave of all. In the language of Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Jesus was doing nothing from selfishness, but was regarding others as more important than Himself. He was not looking, merely, not looking out merely for His own interests, but also for the interests of others. So you see the pattern there? Do you see how He models for His people what we are now called to do? Could Jesus have clung to His equality with the Father? Sure He could have. As eternal God, He had every right to do that. But for the sake of His loving obedience to the Father, for the sake of His delight in the Father's will, and for the sake of His love for sinners, he regarded those blessed privileges as something to be surrendered into the service of others. There's a lesson for us there. There is a lesson for us. You know, as sad as it is to admit it, the reality is for many people, the holidays are not always a happy time. You know, perhaps people think back to a time when they enjoyed the holidays with their whole family. But now, certain loved ones have moved away or others have, have passed away. And the holidays only remind us of how much we miss them. And for others, it could just be a time of severe stress, just trying to make all the dinner plans and make all the travel preparations and finish all your Christmas shopping. And everything just gets stressful and you just wind up getting stressed out and short-fused. And for others, it could just be that different people Hey, had different expectations as to what a holiday gathering was supposed to look like. You know, uh, we thought so-and-so was coming over to this house, but now everybody's got to go to that house. Plans have changed. And because you had these expectations of the way that it was supposed to go, now you're disappointed. And all of those scenarios and more can cause our tempers to shorten and our pride to go strong, to grow strong. But especially at this time of year, friends, we need to have in ourselves the attitude which was in Christ Jesus. It is, it's in the midst of conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, or in the midst of conflict with a family member, or in the midst of conflict with a spouse. Though we might be right about something, though they're wrong and we're right, and though we might have a good case to make, we can think upon the only one who ever had a right to assert his rights and didn't, 
And we can regard one another as more important than ourselves and give preference to one another in honor for the sake of unity. Jesus did not owe us the incarnation. He did not owe us the cross. We were sinful. We were wrong. We deserve punishment. He had the right to, con- to stay in worship and the full fellowship of the Father in heaven. It was His right, but He didn't assert His rights. He let them go. And we are called to have ourselves in, in, in us the very attitude that He had in Him. Calvin said, He, Jesus, gave up His right. All that is required of us is that we do not assume to ourselves a higher position than we ought. The one who sustained all things by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.3 Submitted Himself to being sustained by a 14-year-old Jewish girl. Pregnant. Right? He was, he was a, a, a baby inside the, the womb of Mary. Entirely dependent on her for His sustenance. If God the Son has stooped this far, Friends, to what depths of humility and service will you refuse to stoop? Well then, having observed the pre-incarnate glory from which He came, and having observed the pre-incarnate humility in which God the Son purposed to lay aside His privileges to become a man, let's now consider His incarnate humility. His incarnate humility the pinnacle of His humility that He displayed as the God-man here on earth. Read verse 8 with me. Being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now that opening phrase, being found in appearance as a man, it just underscores the reality of Christ's true humanity. It's just more emphasis that Christ was fully human. The word appearance in Greek is the Greek word schema, from which we get schematics. It, it refers to the outward form that is perceptible to the senses. This is in contrast to the term morphe, which we saw earlier. And in fact, the two words often appear together in the New Testament to differentiate external appearance uh, or, uh, from the form that is intrinsic and essential. So morphe is the intrinsic in nature, and uh, schema is the outward appearance. To illustrate, one commentator puts it this way. He says, a baby, a child, a boy, a youth, and a man, a man of middle age and an old man, always have the morphe of humanity. But the outward schema changes all the time. A a baby, child, boy, youth, man of middle age, and an old man always have the morphe, the nature of humanity. But the outward schema changes all the time. It generally goes further and further down to the ground, doesn't it? Gravity takes a toll on the body, and the outward form changes. We get wrinkles, we get gray hair. Because Christ was truly and fully man, he had both the morphe and the schema of a human being. So the point here is that Christ appeared in a way that was clearly recognizable as human. Another commentator writes, Solid empirical evidence led all those who observed Christ to conclude that He was an authentic, not a counterfeit human being. So, Jesus did not hover three inches above the ground. He did not have a golden halo around His head. 
Contrary to one of our favorite Christmas carols, radiant beams did not stream from his face. He was a normal Middle Eastern man to the point that when he starts talking about how he's the bread of life come down from heaven, the people say, I mean, isn't this just Jesus? Isn't this the son of Joseph? I mean, don't we know his mother and father? To the people he grew up with, he was just Jesus. Amazing. Even there, there is humility to be admired. In the majesty of heaven, to look upon God the Son would have been to look upon the epitome of all beauty. But being found in appearance as a man, as our text says, Isaiah 53 tells us that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. But of course, his humility didn't stop at merely becoming human. His humility expresses itself in obedience to the Father's will. Throughout the Gospel of John, which was written particularly to showcase Christ's deity, there are these continual statements of his submission to the Father. John's point is to say, this is God. And yet Jesus, everywhere he's saying, I'm submitting to the Father. I only do what the Father tells me. John 5.30, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And we could go on and on. But it's not as if his obedience is coerced, right? It's not like as if he's saying, well, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'd really like to do this, but you know, my father tells me to do this, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that. No, John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. But then, even there, to emphasize his obedience submission, he says, this commandment I received from my father. And, and that is the extent to which Christ's obedience takes him, to the laying down of his life. Like we said earlier, Jesus was born to die. The point of Jesus' incarnation is Jesus' passion. Christmas is simply the introduction to Good Friday. And Paul highlights this. The depth of Christ's humility in verse 8 when he says, look at the text there, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Surely, as the eternal Son of the Father, Christ had always from eternity obeyed his Father with joy and, and experienced the fellowship and the delight that comes from that obedience. But in his incarnation, obedience to the Father meant something quite different. It meant greater and greater opposition from all those who were around him until they would eventually kill him. Obedience never looked like that in heaven. In heaven, obedience looked like greater and greater fellowship with the Father. Here on earth, for Jesus, obedience looked like coming greater, more and more closely to alienation from the Father and alienation certainly from everyone else. Here is humility shining like the sun in its full strength. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
the author of life, humbly submits to death. The one who is without sin humbly submits to sin's curse. The one who has life within himself, the one who gives life to whomever he wishes, John 5.21, humbly releases his grip on his own life in submission to the Father and in love for those whom his Father has given him. That hymn goes on to say, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. But it doesn't stop there. There is another step to go before the humiliation of the Son of God reaches rock bottom. He didn't humble himself merely by becoming obedient. He didn't humble himself merely by becoming obedient to the point of death. The Holy Son of God, the Lord of glory, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And here, we hit rock bottom. In that day, nobody wore a cross on their necklace. There was no cross embossed on a Bible cover. There weren't even crosses in churches. In, in that day, the, the cross meant one thing, and one thing only, the most horrific and shameful kind of death. One commentator writes, The cross displayed the, the lowest depths of human depravity and cruelty. It exhibited the most brutal form of sadistic torture and execution ever invented by malicious human minds. Crucifixion was such a horrible way to die that Roman citizens were exempted from such a fate. Roman law strictly forbade crucifixion for Roman citizens and allowed it only for the lower classes, for slaves, for violent criminals, and for traitors. Cicero, who was that uh, famous Roman philosopher and orator, called crucifixion, quote, a most cruel and disgusting punishment, the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon the slaves. He said, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify him is what? There is no word, no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. In fact, in polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity. It was not to be uttered in conversation. Cicero would also say, let the very name of the cross be far removed not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. Why are they so exercised about this? Because in crucifixion, metal spikes were driven through the victim's wrists and feet. And that victim was left to hang naked and exposed. No vital organs were pierced, and so the victim of a crucifixion would sometimes hang on that cross for days as his life slowly crept away from him. And because the body would be pulled down by gravity, the weight of a victim's own body would press against his lungs, and the hyperextension of his lungs and chest muscles as his arms were out here would make it difficult to breathe. And so victims would gasp for air, by, by pulling themselves up. But when they would do that, the wounds in their wrists and in their feet would tear at the stakes that pierced them. And the flesh of their back, usually torn open by 
severe flogging would grate against that jagged wood. Eventually, when he could no longer summon strength to pull himself up to breathe, the victim of a crucifixion would die from suffocation under the weight of his own body. This was the most sadistically cruel, excruciatingly painful, and loathsomely degrading death that a man could die. This is abject degradation. And there on Golgotha, 2,000 years ago, the innocent, holy, righteous Son of God died this death. God on a cross. The Philippians got the picture. This was the highest of the high gone to the lowest of the low. And if he, the one who is worthy of all honor and all praise, could submit himself to that, can worms like you and me continue in selfish ambition and empty conceit? Can we withhold forgiveness from people? Can we do anything less than surrender all of our rights and lay down our lives in the sacrificial service of one another? And I don't just mean, you know, knock somebody out of the way of a moving car. I mean lay down your life. I mean live as a slave of all. Well, you know, I don't really feel like going and giving that guy a ride. I'd rather watch my, you know, shows. Slave of all. I, I, I'd rather spend time with my family with whom I haven't seen very much. And there is, there is a right time for that. You've got to prioritize if you're shepherding your family. But sometimes we've got to give up some family time for the sake of the, the sanctification of the body of Christ. This, 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 I can't believe the way that this guy treated me at work. What, I mean, he was just so nasty to me. And I'm just, I'm never talking to that guy again. He comes around, he says, you know, I'm really sorry about that. And you say, all right, you know, fine, we're okay. But in your heart, you bear a grudge. You know, there's superficial reconciliation. But in your heart, you know, that guy is a jerk. You know, I'm never going to make myself vulnerable to him. That is not what your Lord has done. It is not how he has treated you. And if you, have, if you profess to be saved by a gospel that was accomplished like that, you have no business asserting your own rights. No business withholding forgiveness. None. A wise man once asked, how can anyone be arrogant when he stands beside the cross? And as hard as it may be to believe, the pain, the torture, and the shame we're not the worst part of all of this crucifixion business. Deuteronomy 21:23 states that anyone who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Accursed of God. And Paul quotes this verse in Galatians 3:13, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Along with the pain and along with the shame, crucifixion brought with it a divine curse. We need to dwell long and hard on what it means for God the Son to have been cursed by God the Father. He never deserved to know His Father's wrath. He only ever deserved to know the, His Father's delight 
and his approbation. And there on Calvary, he was cut off from the apple of his eye, from the joy of his heart. He was innocent. And I can barely imagine the sense of bewilderment that the Son of God must have experienced when for the first time in all of eternity, he felt what it was to know his Father's displeasure. No wonder he cried out, My God, why, why, why have you forsaken me? And I, I can barely handle that thought. That was my sin that did that. That was my wrath that he had to endure. That was my frown from the Father. That was my alienation. That was my cry of dereliction. And my friend, if you haven't felt the pain of that thought in the depths of your soul and cry it out with every fiber of your being for God to have mercy on you, I tell you, you sit here dead in your trespasses and sins. But I, I beg you, I beg you to feel that now. Feel it now. Cry out now in repentance and faith. Cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. Turn from your sin. Abandon all your good works that you would rely on to get you to heaven and beg for forgiveness on the basis of this death and coming resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and trust entirely in His righteousness alone for salvation. And the promise is that you will be saved. It's, it's free. His death will have become your death. His curse, your curse. And His righteousness, your righteousness. What could be keeping you this very moment from seizing eternal life? And to my brothers and sisters who have seized it, friends, heed the call of Christmas this Christmas. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. If He could come from the glories of heaven itself all the way down to the abject degradation of the cross, surely, surely we can humble ourselves to be servants of all. Surely we, mere creatures of the dust, can surrender our rights for the sake of true Christian unity. Pray with me. Father, we pray that you would accomplish it in your people. We pray that you would give grace. Show us Christ. Open our eyes to see Christ. Not just to read the words on the page. Not just to comprehend them with our minds. But Father, affect us. Grant that your truth would take root and find a home in our soul. And that we would be changed from, our, from the depth of our affections to not just act humbly but to be humble. Not to earn your favor as if we had anything to earn, but in light of the fact that your favor has been perfectly earned by this Jesus who left heaven to die on a cross, to endure our curse, and who rose again and was exalted to the highest place. Would you, would you do a work in your people? Would you sanctify your people this morning? Would you heal broken relationships? Would you assault pride, cast pride down. Father, as the hound of heaven, would you seek out the consciences of those who would profess to be your people 
and yet nevertheless live in pride? And would you afflict their conscience till they have no rest until they disburden their conscience in the cross of Christ and in repentance? Oh, would you get what you're worthy of in your people? By the working of your spirit, through the preaching of your word, would you honor and glorify yourself by sanctifying us? We pray because we want your glory and honor exalted, manifest for all to see this Christmas. And we can never be an adequate testimony of your sanctifying grace in the gospel if we ourselves do not walk in the pattern with, with which you have given us to walk in. And we are helpless to do it on our own. Oh, would you fill us with your spirit, show us Christ, and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.